You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Heard Tell. It is Tuesday, April the 26th, year of our Lord 2022. So glad you could join us. Very happy to have you along with us, giving us the most precious thing that you have, your time on this day. We really appreciate you. We got a lot of noise to turn down out of the news cycle today. A lot going on in the world. Uh, going to go over to China. Beijing and Shanghai. A lot of COVID no- news coming out of there. There is shutdowns, there's lockdowns, there's inter- there's commerce being interrupted. There's a lot of bad stuff going on over there. Now it's spreading to Beijing. What's going on in China with COVID? We will cover that in just a little bit. Also, Joe Manchin. Remember the last two years we've been told about how Joe Manchin was just going to get run out of West Virginia on a rail? Well, we got some polling numbers and turns out None of that was true. We'll talk narratives. We'll talk Joe Manchin, talk a little West Virginia. You know, I like to talk about West Virginia. We're going to do so in just a little bit, cover Joe Manchin a little bit more. Also, ending the program, fun story, we're going to talk about the science of twisting off an Oreo and trying to get the cream filling to come off evenly, or which one of the two cookies does the cream filling stick to. MIT's on the case, one of the great institutions in our land. They've developed a device to try to test this. A little bit of a lighthearted story about Oreos and the Oreo meter. Yes, it's the thing, an Oreo meter. We'll cover that a little bit later on the program. Great guest today, uh, David McGarry. He's got a piece out where he's writing about a surveillance program, more privacy concerns, more law enforcement outreach concerns. This time it involves money wire transfer companies uh, like Western Union and others, especially down along the southern border. Uh, they are using this data, but they're making it a law where they have to run it through a third-party private company storage house. And then they go and collect the data from that storage house. 
a lot of questionable stuff here. Is it spying? Is it data collection? Is there privacy concerns? David McGarry from Young Voice is going to join us, explain all that to us. Just yet another one of these running issues where we're going to have to keep an eye on things like law enforcement and technology and where it overlaps, find out where people's rights are and are not being violated. Uh, but first, let's start uh, with some media news folks have spent all day now I, I spent way too much time on twitter i will admit it i've told you i love my twitter account i love the interaction uh that's what got me into writing got me into doing radio and got me into doing this program cartel that all started with getting a twitter account and making friends and doing things like that so i love twitter uh elon musk has apparently agreed in principle, and Twitter has agreed to it, to sell Twitter to Elon Musk. And everybody has absolutely lost their freaking minds on Twitter. Uh, let's start with some perspective. Twitter is only about 20% of the American population has a Twitter account, and even smaller slice of that is active on Twitter. And we have data. Something like 80-85% of all tweets come from a very, very small percentage of content providers, and then the rest of it is just amplification, people retweeting it, commenting on it, things like this. It's an echo chamber inside of an echo chamber. Now, having said all that, we talk about Twitter not being real life. That is true, but Twitter is influential because of the people who are on it, especially media people. Uh, one of the reasons I'm on it, uh, because I interact with those folks. I do this program like this. Uh, the, a lot of the media folks are on Twitter, so it has an outside influence. It's both the headwaters and the <laughs> end tail uh, rapids of the information river that flows through our news media. So Twitter's still important, but people have lost their minds because Elon Musk is trying to buy it. Um, I want to quote our friend Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary-Times.com today. He wrote this, he said, now, right now, Twitter's freaking out over the deal because, well, that's what Twitter does. It freaks out over things, quoting Michael here. But as noted in the New York Times, it will be some time before this deal finally closes, and there are a number of hurdles Musk has to clear before he swaps $45 billion in imaginary Tesla value for $45 billion in imaginary Twitter value. The consensus seems to be that this is great for the right wing and bad for the left wing, reading from Michael Siegel here. The basis of this is, well, I'm not sure what the basis of that belief is. No one knows that Elon Musk's politics are, less of all, what he will do if he takes over Twitter, the panic celebration is a reaction to Twitter's prior policies, which has a bit of a left-wing slant, banning President Trump after January 6th riot, banning COVID deniers like Alex Berenson, and generally speaking, being more quick to ban racist white right-wing trolls than the moronic left-wing trolls. I myself am agnostic on the prospect of Elon Twitter. Remember, this is Michael Siegel, our good friend, most seen guest on this program. Good, good. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure the deal is going to happen. There are a lot of steps before Elon can run naked through the Twitter headquarters. Second, God forbid he does it. Second, I think we will find that many of the policies are in place for a reason, so his ability to change them without exposing himself legally is going to be limited. Third, while he talks a big talk, no one knows what's going to happen to translate into actual corporate policy. I don't think even Elon Musk, having finally caught the car, knows what he's going to do with it. If I were a betting man, this is Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary-Times.com, I would be on marginal changes that leave right-wingers disappointed and left-wingers relieved. But ultimately, this is a very inside baseball thing. While Twitter has a lot of power in the media, its reach into the real world is extremely limited. And maybe if people carry out their threats and leave it, they'll realize just how limited that reach is. Michael Siegel writing there. Uh, that's why they don't leave, or if they leave, they don't go for long because they realize they need 
Twitter to be relevant in their business and or social media pursuits. What do we make of all this? Uh, look, I really didn't want Elon Musk to buy Twitter. I've been pretty open about that. I was skeptical that he could buy it and put together a package to do so. I still slightly am because this has got to go through regulatory approval. So we'll see. Maybe this does go through. If I'm wrong, we say we're wrong. That's what we do here. We just do truth. Uh, we don't lose any points for being wrong. We just say we're wrong, adjust, and move forward. So if I'm wrong on this, I'm wrong on it. I wish it wasn't true, but is it going to be that big of a thing? I don't know. Musk has the attention span of usually about 11 minutes. It's part of his genius and his fobbles as a human being. He has these spurts of things where he does stuff. We'll see how long Twitter keeps his attention. The other thing about social media companies we need to understand, we talked about this with the true social media uh, that Donald Trump is hilariously failing at. Social media is a very, very tough platform to run. It's not like running a normal website. Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and places like this have armies of engineers to keep these things running. They're highly technical. I know it sounds great for people to say, like, we're going to put out the algorithm open source. Everybody can, folks, unless you can recode, you're not going to understand what that algorithm says. Now they can tell you the parameters of it and things like this. Um, I don't understand it. I really don't. I know there's this fanboy fascination with Elon Musk because of all the various things he does. I love the SpaceX stuff. I don't like the Tesla stuff for reasons we've talked about before. I'm skeptical of it. But folks have absolutely turned him into an avatar over the last couple of days that he's going to fix all their complaints over social media. No, he's not. He wouldn't know how to. And frankly, him tweeting about something and him running a multi-billion dollar company is two very different things. Folks need to calm down with their expectations, especially on the left who are acting like this is the end of free speech ever. Number one, it's still a private company. Number two, we already told you the stats of how small an area Twitter covers. Everybody just calm down. Keep your bearing. This isn't the end of the world. It's not the end of Twitter. It's not the end of free speech for sure. And it's definitely not the end of democracy. Even if you don't like Elon Musk, and I'm suspect of him, this isn't the end of the world. Even if you're a big fan of Elon Musk, He's not going to make it perfect the way you like it. In fact, he's already shown a proclivity to just say whatever's off the top of his head. Chances are he's probably going to say something to upset you later on down the road. So keep your bearing and then make Twitter what you want to make of it. Because the truth is Twitter is what you make of it. It's up to you. Don't blame other people if you're having a bad Twitter experience. Change your timeline. Change who you follow. Follow me. Because you should be anyway. More hotel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donson. Thank you for staying with us. Let's talk narratives for a minute. Now, that word just gets abused and used and thrown around, but it is true. News media has narratives, especially with social media. Once you put those two things together uh, and you start chasing things like trends and going viral and things like that, narratives definitely are a real thing. It gets in people's heads. People, you know, call it common, call it whatever you want to. But once the general consensus becomes something specific, it's really hard to get people off that thing. Uh, the other aspect of this is that social media can distort what that consensus is, can distort what that consensus is, and it doesn't always make it reality. So over at Morning Consult today, something very interesting, something a little near and dear to my heart because I've written about it 
a whole bunch, including in Washington Examiner magazine uh, that people reacted to. But uh, Senator Joe Manchin from the great state of West Virginia. It's so funny because I was just in West Virginia visiting some family. We were discussing this very item. Uh, Now, the Internet told us that West Virginia was mad at Joe Manchin that West Virginia was going to run Joe Manchin out on a rail because he wasn't supporting Bill Back better and he wasn't progressive enough and he wasn't a good enough Democrat and go pick whatever narrative you want from the last two years. Joe Manchin's a horrible, wicked human being, according to some folks, because he was not supporting the president's agenda. Now, there's two sides to this. Is Sure, if you're a Democrat, and especially if you're more progressive than he is, is one of the more conservative Democrats in national office, I can see where you're frustrated with him. I get that. The other part of that is, is I always want to ask these people, is they're like, well, throw him out is, well, he's the only Democrat that's going to win a Senate seat in the state of West Virginia. Would you prefer to not have control of the Senate? They never seem to answer that portion of that equation. But nevertheless, let's move on. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin, reading from Morning Consult here, has faced the wrath of progressives nationwide during Joe Biden's presidency for killing a range of domestic agenda items on voting rights, social spending programs, and climate change. But at home in West Virginia, Morning Consult political intelligence data suggests the moderate Democrat knows exactly what he's doing. (laughs) In surveys conducted between January and the end of March, 57% of West Virginia voters approve of Manchin's job performance, up over 40% from the first quarter in 2021, the biggest increase of any senator over that time frame. There's some charts here, by the way, if you want to go to morningconsult.com, you can read this for yourself. Manchin's double-digit approval rating improvement over the course of Biden's tenure is a rarity when it comes to other incumbents. Just three of them, John Tooney in South Dakota, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, and Alex Padilla out in California. Uh, By the way, Murkowski's running for re-election, and Padilla was appointed. He took uh, Vice President Harris's Senate seat when she was elected. Have seen comparable improvement in their standings, where Murkowski saw upticks among independents and Republicans, Tooney, received improved marks across the board and Padilla's standing got better due to more voters becoming aware of him. Remember, he was appointed. Um, Manchin's boost stands out due to the dramatic shift in the coalition supporting him, which has reddened to a staggering extent. I cover this at Washington Examiner. I've also wrote about it for ARC Digital and a bunch of other places. You can go and find my writing on it. West Virginia is a special case. West Virginia was cobalt blue for over 100 years. And when it went red, it went red fast. Remember, if you go back a little bit, uh, Al Gore losing the state to George W. Bush was considered a shock. Uh, It was kind of his Wisconsin with Hillary back in 2016 moment. He took it for granted, didn't get it. Why is that a big deal? Well, if he has those five electoral votes, none of that Florida recount stuff happens. It was a state he was expected to win. He didn't. West Virginia has voted for a Republican president ever since. And now everybody except Joe Manchin at the national level, including the governor and both houses of the legislature, are Republican. That shift came in under 20 years. Uh, More for other times, but you can go read all my writing about it. It's a complicated thing, but it happened, and it's a unique situation, and Joe Biden is surfing that, trying to stay on top. That's the background for a lot of this. So when they say that it's changed and reddened, they ain't lying. Uh, Back to the piece. Uh, Morning consult. Manchin's increased popularity is driven by primarily by Republican voters, 69% now approve of his job performance, doubling his rating from the first quarter of last year when it was 35% approval. 
Most of that improvement has come since the third quarter of 2021 before he killed the Democrats' Build Back Better domestic policy legislation. While Manchin has made up ground on the right, he angered West Virginia Democrats, 54% of whom now disapprove of him, up from 32% around this time last year. However, he's also made large gains with independence over that time frame, with an approval rating going from 31 to 50%. It turns out Joe Manchin knows more about West Virginia voters than D.C. strategists, said former Manchin aide Joe Knott. The amount of interactions he has with his voters I don't think can be paralleled by the other members. Manchin's numbers in West Virginia stand in contrast to those of Senator Christine Sinema, the Arizona Democrat who has joined Manchin in blocking key pieces of Biden's agenda. Despite a similar coalition shift, her approval rating has dropped to 46% to 44%, while the share who disapproved increased from 35 to 42 due to souring among Democrats and a lack of bounce among independents. For Manchin, the increased support from the other side of the aisle could come in handy as he is said to be plotting a 2024 re-election campaign in the state Biden lost by nearly 39 points to former President Donald Trump. According to Morning Consult, tracking conducted in each state, Manchin's high marks place him among America's 10 most popular senators for the first time since Biden took office. If you're curious, he's number eight of those 10 most popular senators. The aforementioned Tooney is number one. Uh, Bernie Sanders, John Barrasso are also on those lists, uh, along with some of the others mentioned. What does this all mean? Uh, our progressive friends have been after Manchin for a long time. Uh, I've wrote about this before. This is a very personal feud with them. There was a conference call back when he ran for his first reelection in the Senate. The progressive Congress really, really wanted some concessions out of him because Bernie Sanders had uh, done decently well in a primary in the state of West Virginia. This is way back when. Uh, and there was some cursing involved. There was some telling each other to go to hell involved, these sorts of things. They don't like each other. Uh, so the progressives have had it out for Manchin ever since. Now, the reason I tell you that is because there's this idea in the media, and Twitter especially, and social media was all over this during uh, the last two years or so of the Build Back Better stuff that there was going to be a progressive backlash in the state of West Virginia, and they were going to run Manchin out on the rail. That was folly. That was never going to happen. The progressive candidate that they ran in the Democratic primary against uh, Joe Manchin and ran in the general election against the other senator from West Virginia, Shelley Moore Capito, was a very progressive lady named Paula Jean Swearingson. She lost in the primary to Joe Manchin by 40 points. She lost in the general election to Senator Capito this last cycle by 42 points. It's a fallacy. It's a fantasy. It's not going to happen. Now, West Virginia being deep red is not uh, a settled thing. I don't think that's going to be permanent. At some point, it's going to come back around a little bit. Anytime you have a swing that big, it will come back around somewhat. There's a generational thing going on. There's a demographic thing going on. West Virginia is demographically bleeding to death. In the next 10 to 15 years, you'll see those numbers balance out a little bit. But in the meantime, what's this tell us about narratives? If you talk to people in West Virginia, if you listened and watched and read writers, not to toot my own horn, as the great Arn Anderson would say, but to toot folks that actually know what Joe Manchin is about and know about West Virginia and understand how these things work because you pay attention to them, not because we have special insights, just because you got to pay a little bit of attention. The national narrative on Joe Manchin never matched. Joe Manchin represents West Virginia, and Joe from Farmington knows a lot more about West Virginia than pundits from D.C. and New York or wherever else they're sitting, and he knows a whole lot more about it than the progressive political operatives that have been trying to get their foothold 
into West Virginia. Now we've had someone there. We've had progressive office holders from West Virginia on this program and we'll continue to do so. We're happy to have them. Uh, it's all hands to the pump when it comes to my home state. I don't care what your political party or ideology is. If you got an idea to help my state, I'm all for it. I'll have them on. We've had on Danielle Walker, Representative Danielle Walker, Representative Kayla Young. These are proud progressive folks, and they do some good work, even though we don't agree on everything. But when it comes to Joe Manchin, he knows what he's doing. He has the pulse of the people. He's a politician through and through, including all his side deals, including all the swerving from issue to issue and triangulating, as the Clinton years would say. It's not because he's a great guy. He's a politician through and through. But he knows more about it than the national media does. And now he has the numbers to back it up. So you can go ahead and howl on Twitter or Facebook or wherever else about Joe Manchin's this and Joe Manchin's that. If Joe Manchin runs for re-election, he's going to win because they don't have anybody that can beat him because he's still Joe Manchin. Just listen to the West Virginia people. When they tell you things like this, we generally know what we're talking about. More we'll Hurtel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay. Uh, this may come as a shock to you. Some of you may need to sit down for this, especially those of you out in overflow that couldn't get into the service. Uh, the government might be spying on us again. We're going to go to another one of our Young Voices contributors all the way out in Los Angeles, California. David McGarry, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, thrilled to have you. He's another one of these great Young Voices contributors that we're so proud to partner with. He's written all over the place, American Spectator, other places that you'll notice. This particular place comes out of the center square, though. And just to kind of set it up for us, David, this is not a new thing, but this is kind of a new take on it. Uh, they're going after, in this particular case, things like Western Union. And the bigger problem here is we're going through a third party private entity with the government subpoenas and investigation. This on its surface looks like a hot mess. What did it look like when you started looking into it? Well, the further you dig into it, the hotter the mess gets. The government is forcing these uh, credit transfer businesses like Western Union to provide an incredibly uh, wide set of data to a private entity that basically compiles and holds on to this data for law enforcement agencies across the country to access without any kind of warrant or supervision. Now, is that purposeful? Because it seems odd that they would go through a clearinghouse. I understand on their end while they're doing it. It's nice and easy. Um, but when you get into the numbers here, it looks suspicious to me because I'm not super great at math, David. Help me here. They were going in this particular case with uh, Western Union and Max Transfer, which is um, very popular for like migrants, people like that sending money to Mexico, for example. Uh, but most people would know Western Union, what that is. What they were going after here was they really wanted about eight uh, summonses that they were looking at, but those eight summonses through customs requests, that yielded six million records. Now, that math don't make sense to me. Is that as egregious as it sounds? Because that seems like they really kind of took an inch and went running with a mile here. Well, if anything, it's more egregious than it sounds because these custom summonses, which is the type of subpoena that um, home se Homeland Security Investigations was using to uh, gather these uh, to gather this data are explicitly limited to apply to certain types of investigations it is expressly not to be used for bulk data gathering 
So they are violating their own rules. And um, although, of course, the government insists that all of its actions were above board and nothing was done that was wrong, all that it took to stop these activities was one letter from Senator, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon inquiring after this, and suddenly all of this activity was shut down. Now, there, there's sins of omission and commission. Isn't It kind of looks on the, the reason this wasn't illegal is just because nobody thought to write a law about it yet. Is that kind of the take you took on it? And then as soon as they, they if they quit that quick, they knew this was probably shady and we're doing anyway. So, yeah, it's probably not in the letter of the law, but that's just because nobody had actually tried it before. Is that kind of the feel you got with this? Well, I'm not sure about that, to be completely honest, because there's still a lot that we have to find out. Exactly who at HSI headquarters knew about this and when is still a little bit up in the air. Um, We know for a fact that the agents involved with this behavior were not actually going through the uh, going through the prescribed uh, legal and privacy reviews that they're supposed to complete before they open uh, or before they take these kinds of actions. So might it possibly technically technically be within the letter of the law? I doubt it. Small chance. But as I said, they violated their own regulations to get to this point. So it doesn't seem to me as if they're they're, uh, acting legally. Yeah. David McGarry joining us from Young Voices. All right. Uh, you already mentioned it, so let's talk about it. Uh, Ron Wyden, a uh, senator from Oregon, he's the one that got involved with this. How did he get involved with it, and what was he actually doing that led up to him looking into this? and getting? I, was it a constituency thing? Was it an investigation thing? How did that happen? So Wyden has actually been very good on these issues of, uh, of privacy um, of late. He called out uh, op- Operation Whistlepig, which was a... Uh, border patrol agent opening an incredibly extensive investigation into a journalist on very flimsy evidence. He called out CIA data gathering earlier this year, and now he's uh, targeting HSI. I mean, the man just cares about an issue that all 99 of his uh, partners in the Senate should also care about. But let's face it, for whatever reason, um, political or otherwise, they don't seem to. But the man's made it a, uh, a priority and part of his uh, part of his political package in his resume, and I think he should be commended for that and supported for that, even though there's plenty of his other policies and beliefs that I disagree with. Yeah, and Ron Wyden is a Democrat from Oregon. Oregon, of course, being more of a leftward leaning state, especially the Portland area. Um, is there more bipartisanship on this issue? Because we've been dealing with this since, especially since 9/11. We know about the Patriot stuff. We've been dealing in the last few years with things like FISA warrants and these sorts of things. We've talked on our program a lot about the Fourth Amendment. Uh, you talk about Senator Wyden. Is he alone out there, or are there other representatives and senators that you're seeing that maybe get some bipartisan consensus on privacy issues? Because I'm noticing we talk a lot of good game when it comes to big tech and things like that, but then when it's something like this, those same people kind of get quiet. Is that a fair criticism, or is other people noticing that as well? No, I think I think that is spot on right there. Um, And I think much of it comes down to the fact that our politics is partisan, not only in not only in the ways that that people that the people view themselves, but in the issues that they pick to prioritize. So, like you said, for the left, um, privacy issues and uh, surveillance of citizens has been a really, really big deal for a while. Um, But right now, because it's not a great blunt object to hit Republicans over the head with. 
it's not actually, um, or I should say the left isn't making uh, Biden administration abuses a priority to combat with the exception of Biden. Um, with that said, I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, that the Republicans aren't jumping on this a little bit more. Under In the Trump administration, the conservatives and Republicans and people of the right generally got the idea and started to understand that letting law enforcement agents with all of their biases and personal flaws, uh, letting law enforcement agents go after citizens outside the law probably wasn't the best idea, especially if they if there was no oversight to uh, keep keep them in line. Um, and of course, I'm referring to a lot of the FISA abuse that we saw in um, in relation to the uh, in, in relation to investigations of Trump campaign uh, campaign officials. So why why they can't carry that over and demand that Biden era a law enforcement agents follow the law as well? I don't know. I tend to think that it that they're sort of falling back on old style 2000s Tom Cotton-esque support for law enforcement and military and surveillance in general, but I don't know for sure. Yeah. Talking to David McGarry about this surveillance program. All right. Uh, when we're talking law enforcement on this particular case, the elephant in the room is DHS. We know what an absolute monster of a government organization this has grown into. And I don't mean that in necessarily a bad way. It's just, it's a monster. It's huge. When they built this thing after 9-11, I don't know that folks really realized how much it was going to change things like law enforcement, like oversight. Where's DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, on this program? Because like you said, this is a multi-state program. You're also dealing with Mexico because you have a lot of people that come in the country and use these wire transfer companies to send money back to Mexico. Uh, that touches on the immigration issue, which is, of course, in the DHS. What's their role here? Because they have direct oversight from Congress, but they're also so big. We've seen this in hearings time after time after time. It's proven to be an organization that's really hard to do effective oversight on. What's their role in this and where should we start focusing in on because they're so big to get into the heart of the matter on this particular issue? So I think you really hit it on the head, which is that at at a certain point, if or I should say in the absence of clear regulations and clear oversight structures, there will be misbehavior when you give any uh, agency or individual this much power over citizens. And actually, that's something that Wyden mentions in his letter, that these custom summons have been abused routinely in the past, that we know this, this has been the subject of inspector general reports, yet for one reason or another, probably because there's not enough institutional incentive to, to make the brass care about it, these reforms have not clearly been implemented throughout the agency. We continue our conversation with David McGarry right after this on Hartel. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Talking to David McGarry. 
uh, you you bring up the point that I think is is apropos here is okay. Anytime you're dealing with the legislative branch with Congress, whether it's the senators or the House of uh, Representatives, the only way you really get anybody to do anything is pressure. Um, you talk about it here. Do you see any other way that some of the surveillance stuff is just bringing it to the fore and citizenry having to put pressure on Congress? Because I understand Senator Wyden's taking the lead on this, and God bless him for that. That's one out of that's one out of a hundred, like you pointed out earlier. There's 99 other ones. Uh, what should the citizenry be doing once they find out about an issue like this to kind of bring that pressure to bear? I think this is the classic: call your senators, call your representatives, call uh, call advocacy advocacy groups. Uh, if you're if you're on the fence in an election and 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 one candidate supports um, supports privacy and the protection of privacy. And the other one doesn't if they seem to otherwise be similar in say a primary or even maybe a general election in certain districts let that be your um let that be your defining vote in the absence of other uh, of other important uh important concerns i mean obviously it's a balance we we can't we can't become one issue voters but at the same time as citizens we can um we can make our voices heard in you know on the phone in emails in surveys opinion polling means a lot these days when it comes to the way that uh these folks run their campaigns. Um, and then for the rest of us um, who are uh, who are maybe involved in some kind of writing or even for 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 citizens who just like to repost things on social media, let's spread the word about this. Let's talk about it. I mean, the, there's no shortage of uh, of news on this front. As I mentioned, we have Operation Whistlepig, where this uh, rogue border agent was just launching the uh, launching the full powers of multiple different agencies against a reporter because he thought that she might be involved in something unsavory didn't go through any kind of oversight protocols didn't uh <clears throat> didn't follow any kind of uh any kind of process really just decided that he wanted to use the immense power that he had at his disposal to uh to dig through her entire life and he did that on top of that you have like i mentioned before also the widen expose on the CIA's what they call call uh, data queries, where they were gathering quote unquote incidental data on Americans um, because they could, um, or at least they felt that they could. Um, and then now, um, Cato uh, is um, is involved in some lawsuits, some FOIA lawsuits, to get the FBI to disclose more informations, uh, more more information about these uh, informal, uh, basically investigations. Of course, they don't call them investigations, but basically the FBI has been launching investigations into all sorts of political um, political groups that they perceive to possibly be threats. Uh, and they found a workaround that they feel will allow them to get away with it. And until someone somewhere uh, says something, they'll, they're gonna keep doing it. And I think that um, I think that people like Wyden are really uh, are really kicking the ball off. And, you know, it's our job to support them and spread the word. Let me ask it this way. Has the word privacy gotten too buzzwordy? Have we got to the place where it's 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 not having the impact it should when we talk privacy issues? And maybe we should focus a little more like, you know, this is a law enforcement issue. Like, OK, this is data collection and privacy and a law enforcement issue. And separate that from when we're talking about something like big tech, where you're talking about consent agreements and third parties, and it's a little bit different beast. Do you, do you think the buzzword is getting in the way here a little bit where people just hear privacy and they're like, oh, another privacy thing? 
should we be more specific in our language when dealing with disease? Like, look, this is a law enforcement issue. This affects a lot of people. This is a digital copyright issue. This is going to affect you in a different way. Would, would that specificity be helpful here? Because I, I wonder if we're not just making a lot of white noise about um, privacy and we're kind of losing folks when we're trying to talk about really important issues here. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, like I point out at the end of my piece, spying in the uh, 21st century isn't the sexy cloak and dagger uh, James Bond driving away in a fast car and you know leaving, a, uh, leaving an explosion behind you. It's someone sitting at a desk in some basement office typing in some kind of search query or going through, uh, going through filling out the legalese of a subpoena or what have you. These are, these are little specific actions that, that, like you said, we should be more specific about um, explaining exactly how, uh, how certain, uh, certain agencies in the government are snooping and spying on, on citizens. Um, like, 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 uh, like I was saying before, there's so many examples of these, of these abuses and we have a we have an, an idea of spying or uh, of government surveillance rather as what I call big brotherism. And if you've read 1984, which I assume you have, and a lot of the people listening have as well, um, most of big brother surveillance comes from these uh, come from a single method of basically putting cameras in as many rooms as possible. But that's not the way that's not the way that surveillance works in the real world in the 21st century. It's much more of death by a thousand cuts. Um, there's so many little ways that the federal government has access to your private life and your private details that essentially, if it wants to, for whatever reason that it, that it sees fit, it can indeed intrude on you. David McGarry, outstanding stuff on this. Uh, we'll have you back on because this issue is never going to go away. It's just going to get worse and worse, I'm afraid. Till we have you back on the show, though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, and how they can keep track of what's going on in the world of David McGarry. Yeah, please follow me on Twitter at David B. McGarry. Um, also follow my work with Young Voices. You'll find my profile on the website. Um, I'm writing and getting published consistently on privacy issues, on uh, tech and uh, and uh, personal security issues. So I would love to, uh, I would love to get my message out as far and wide as possible. And I can't wait to come back on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Anytime that's McGarry with two R's and an A M C G A R R. And I like them other McGarry's that spell it differently. Make sure you get it right. David McGarry. Great <laughs> stuff today, my friend. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much, sir. appreciate you staying with us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, things in China have gone from bad to worse as it goes with COVID-19. Now, quick preference here. A lot of what's going on with China's policy towards COVID-19 has to do with the fact that the vaccine that they touted apparently doesn't work hardly at all, if at all, if it wasn't just straight propaganda. They're having all kinds of problems in China. Well, uh, especially in Shanghai. We'll touch on that in a second. But now it's spread to Beijing uh, from the BBC. 
the Chinese capital, Beijing, has kicked off mass testing for millions of residents after a spike in COVID testing. The Chaiyang district uh, reported a bunch of cases over the weekend, the highest number so far in Beijing's latest surge. Long queues outside supermarkets and shops were seen despite government assurances there's sufficient food and there's runs on food and there's social media postings, even as tightly controlled as social media is in China, that there was a run on food, uh, panic shopping, this sort of thing. All this comes as fears that Beijing could face similar situation to Shanghai, which has seen some 25 million people shut in their homes for weeks. Uh, quick aside here, Shanghai is also the busiest port in the world. And they're something like one in five of all the containers of all the world. It's sitting off of Shanghai, unable to unload right now. You want to start talking about supply chain issues in a couple of weeks or in the months ahead. Remember that Shanghai, the largest container port in the world, is completely shut down right now. Um, the case goes on. Uh, the piece on BBC goes on to talk about the panic buying. But let's get to the important part here. Uh, state media news outlet, the Global Times, said that Beijing's fresh food companies had been ordered to increase the supply of groceries like meat, poultry, eggs, and vegetables. They also quoted health experts as saying the results of the mass testing would indicate whether there's a need to escalate measures further, such as locking down several areas. Separately, Bang Zhizhao, uh, deputy director of the Beijing Center for Disease Prevention and Control, told state media outlet China Daily that the number of cases in Beijing is expected to increase in the following days. The latest outbreak in Shanghai, first detected in late March, has seen more than 400,000 cases recorded so far and 138 deaths. Some of the measures, listen to this. This is absolutely bonkers to us in America where we talked about mask mandates and we talked about lockdowns. We didn't actually have lockdowns here. We just had restrictions. Listen to what's going on over there right now, today. Some of the measures from the BBC again, the Chinese authorities have enforced include placing electronic door alarms to prevent those infected from leaving and forcibly evacuating people from their homes to carry out disinfection procedures. Some in lockdown areas of Shanghai say they've been struggling to access food supplies and forced to wait for government drop-offs of vegetables, meat, and eggs. Green barricades have also been erected overnight in parts of Shanghai without prior warning, effectively preventing residents from leaving their homes. In contrast to many other countries, China is pursuing a zero-COVID strategy with the aim of eradicating the virus from the country completely. While officials managed to keep infection levels relatively low at the beginning of the pandemic, hold on one second, uh, that's probably a lie. We know for a fact they were lying and covering all this up, not only their culpability in this uh, crisis to start with, but they were also uh, jiggling all their numbers. We also know that they were pressuring the World Health Organization to make sure that China didn't get blamed for any of this, whatever the culpability is, and we're probably never going to learn the truth to the origins of the COVID-19 outbreak. So the idea that they had uh, had it together at the beginning, that's a bald-faced lie. It's a Chinese propaganda lie, and it's one that every time we see it, we're going to call it out because the Chinese people can just disappear people and weld people into their homes and get the numbers to whatever they want. So don't buy that number for a second. Back to the piece. Uh, later lockdowns have struggled to contain recent, more transmittable variants of the virus. Uh, in other parts of the China, outside Shanghai and Beijing, more than 20 cities, home to more than 30 million people, are under lockdown. In some cities, such as Sanyai, uh, probably not pronouncing these right, just bear with me, folks. In the South, people can only enter or leave with a negative COVID test less than 48 hours old, along with a green code on China's COVID app. Jiangsu province, where there's more than 80 million people, closed 129 highway toll stations 
and 59 service centers for a period earlier this month. The Minister of Transport says that 11 highway highway toll stations and 27 service centers remain closed across the country down from the 677 stations and 337 centers on the 10th of April. Uh, What's the story here? The story is China's vaccines did not work. China's zero COVID policy does not work, and they are desperately trying to control something they have very little control over. And the problem they got is when you start having things like runs on food, you can only jiggle that so much before it starts showing up in things like social media. Even as tightly propaganda controlled as Chinese media is, this stuff's getting out, which also means that what they're actually admitting to is probably far, far worse. So a lesson here for us in America and in the Western countries that have done a little bit better with COVID as of late, don't get arrogant. We had vaccines that worked. We had multiple vaccines that worked. We had some policies that caught up. Uh, some Hopefully the worst of COVID-19 is behind us, but we should still have a little bit of humility to it. People have to take care of their own business. They have to take their own precautions. They have to see to the vaccines as best as for them and their families and move along with things. One thing that we have learned, whether it's China or America, just a top-down, one-size-fits-all COVID policy is never, ever going to be effective to get you to zero COVID. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all top-down policy that fits anything, especially a disease that can mutate and change. And also, something we always harp on, whether it's COVID or financial or anything else, government accountability. The Chinese government under the auspices of the Chinese Communist Party, has no accountability. They pretty much do whatever they want, and people are dying for it and paying the price of their health. We should be careful with our own government here in America or wherever you're listening to this, that your government stays accountable because there's a lot of lessons from the past crisis that we should learn. I'm pretty sure we haven't, and we're going to be unprepared for the next crisis like we were for this one. More hotel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Okay, folks, you know we always try to end on a little bit of a lighter note. Here's a great one out of gizmodo.com. A team of mechanical engineers at MIT recently developed an Oreo meter to test the optimal way of separating the two halves of an Oreo cookie so that the wafer and the cream filling inside remain unbroken. We've hit the hard-hitting topics that need to be hit here on Hertel, folks. It was an exercise in rheology or the study of how matter flows. They called this particular experiment Oreoology. The fluid in this case was the cream filling, a soft solid that team classified as mushy, meaning it's not very brittle, unlike a cracker or relatively soft like a bread. Oreo cream is a yield stress fluid, a group that includes cookie dough, concrete, and lava. Seems like an odd grouping of things. Nevertheless, they're smarter than us. Take the word for it. They are fluids that act as soft solids, meaning that they only flow or change shape when enough stress is applied to them. In the case of the cookies, that stress either comes from your hands opening the cookie or your teeth cutting into the chase. The team built their Oreo meter to test how different types of Oreos separate, paying particular attention to the cream distribution, 
across the two wafers once the cookies split. Their research is published today in Physics of Fluids. Uh, again, reading from Gizmodo, our favorite twist was rotating while pulling Oreos apart from one side as a kind of peel and twist, which is the most reliable for getting a very clean break. Uh, any six-year-old could have told you that one, folks, uh, said Crystal Owens, a mechanical engineer at MIT and the lead author of the new paper, paper in an email to Gizmodo. Peeling is intuitively well known to cause adhesive failure, like when you want to remove a sticker from a surface without tearing the sticker itself. The Oreo meter isn't capable of peeling, so the team used it to twist the cookies. The cookie goes between the two clamps and rubber bands on the clamps adjust the torque on the wafers. As pennies are added to the chambers on one side or the other, the clamp rotates, separating the cookies. The researchers found that the cream would often stay on one side or the other rather than uh, however, they believe the result of how the Oreos are manufactured more than anything else. They tested regular Oreos as well as the Dubba and Mega Stuffed varieties, which have more cream filling and did not report any apparent correlation between the amount of cream and how cleanly the cookie separated. The team made the Oreo meter from open source so anyone can build their own device and collect data on Oreo separation and sheer fry would be proud. <laughs> Come on now, like you never took uh, an experiment in how to separate Oreos, which usually turned into an exercise in getting to eat extra Oreos. That'll do it for her tell today. So glad you decided to join us again. However, you're watching and or listening, we sure appreciate it. Make sure you're subscribing on the YouTube channel, uh, on all the podcasting platforms. Those subscriptions are important. One is you don't miss anything we do, whether it's her tell the good talks, uh, interview breakout segments, or the Twice on Sunday show or any of the long-form podcasts when we deep dive into a subject. We want to make sure you're getting all of that. Also, let's just keep track of what you are and are not listening to. Those subscriptions and the downloads tell us which shows you're listening to best. More directly, leave a comment, leave a rating. Those are really important for us. You really want to get direct, you can contact us at HerdTellShow at gmail.com, HerdTellShow at the Twitter. Reach out. We've done whole segments just based on your questions or something you want to cover might even like our buddy Holden, wind up on the show yourself, doing a little bit of feedback yourself. You never know. Keep your bearing. Be nice. We'd be happy to have you along for the ride. So wherever you and yours are today, tomorrow, whenever you're going to be listening to this, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.